the person who gets the most done has the least excuses. Welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show, where we'll be discussing leadership, business, human potential, inspiring you to live rich from the inside out. Unlock your creativity, stretch out of your comfort zone, break through your barriers, take inspired action, and achieve epic results. Now here's your host, three-time best-selling author, speaker, and certified executive coach, Deborah Kozowski. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show, where I bring you guests from around the world that are going to inspire, educate you, and motivate you into action. And today's guest is going to do absolutely that. A forceful advocate for women's rights, former state Senator Gloria Romero was the first woman to serve in leadership as California Senate Majority Leader. A professor emeritus at California State University, Los Angeles, and she has a PhD in psychology. Welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show. Thank you. It's so good to be with you. Well, Dr. Romero, I'm just going to flash up your book because I was diving into this. You're just not that likable. And it is The Price All Women Pay for Gender Bias. And it's such an interesting topic. And I know it's a topic that is has been, you know, controversial um, in, in many ways. And, you know, one of the things that comes to mind is how do you encourage women to shatter the glass ceiling when they see that those opportunities um, are limited and they shy away from taking that chance. Absolutely. And first of all, thank you for inviting me as a guest on your wonderful podcast. And thank you to your listeners as well. Um, This is something that we don't talk about. So I think the first thing is that we have to give it a name. We have to talk about it in a sense bring it out of the dustbin, bring it out of the closet. A lot of times when women, especially when we are leaders, we might hear that we are bossy, abrasive, you know, that word that that rhymes with witch, <laughs> it starts with a B. We're told that we are essentially unlikable and it can be very shattering to us. But when we start understanding the roots and why especially women in strong positions in the in the business world, certainly in the political world, how we get labeled with this, it's important first and foremost to put a label on it, start talking about it. Because even as I wrote the book, I talked with so many women who said, Gloria, that happened to me. So we are not alone. And you know what I find fascinating? You know, we we think of these stereotypes and confronting these stereotypes. Yet I've even observed them amongst women. So that's, to me, that's, you know, starts with self and starts within our own cohort of women in order to make that change. Absolutely. And indeed, you know, the book, and I think it's a fun read, but it's also research-based. I go through the sociological, psychological, business literature to look at the studies that have been done on this. And we find what you say is absolutely uh, correct. We might think that there is a sisterhood. It really doesn't exist in this world. And we find that other women are just as likely to go ahead and to label women leaders as unlikable. In fact, we find from the research that women and men more so report that they'd rather work for a male than for a female boss. 
And that's fascinating because, you know, some of the men I witnessed in leadership could use some nurturing and empathy and compassion in their roles. And I also have met some, you know, women that could use some of that authority and just being more confident with themselves. So I think there's a way that, you know, definitely there needs to be a balance of some type. So what would you recommend to uh, a young woman or someone who feels like they've been called into leadership? How do they start even confronting stereotypes? Absolutely. Um, I think first and foremost, and the book goes through this, talk about how this really begins in childhood, you know, the sugar and spice and everything nice, and how we raise our children from ourselves, the toys that we play with, the clothing, the labels, you know, honey, sweetheart, dear, rather than my, you know, my little tough little tiger there. So we go through all of that. I think when we look at women in leadership, I think the first thing is to, first of all, walk in being cognizant of that. And even as we walk into those executive suites, into the corporate rooms, uh, even as we enter as women on that managerial ladder moving up, it's to not be afraid to uh, to raise the issue. And as we as we work out our contracts, I think it's important for us to really objectify what the end goals are. What I mean by that is oftentimes we'll talk about teamwork. We'll talk about how our staff evaluate us, how we get along. And of course, you know, on the surface, we want that. But when we delve into it, when, when we really look at what's hidden in there, what we find is that women basically will never win the game if we are put up on the likability factor. Because we have all of these issues of we expect men to be successful, we expect men to lead. We don't really expect that. We say we do, but we don't really expect it. And then we kind of say, oh, you know, she's a bit abrasive. She's bossy. So I give a lot of recommendations about how it's important to be, to get objective criteria. What are the goals? What is the performance? Sort of forget the likability. What is the work performance that we want to have ourselves measured by the performance metrics? And the more that we do that, we can curb the likability penalty that especially impact women. So what are some of those likability demands that men don't have? Uh, first of all, we can just think about uh, adjectives. And in the book, I talk about both in the, the uh, corporate world as well as the world of politics, uh, where maybe we might say that a woman is you know, the iron lady. She's the dragon lady. Uh, we deal with all the labeling. We deal with the expectation overall that how we speak. In my career, for example, I have actually been, you know, sat down and told that I speak with my hands and I do. And I've been told that this is intimidating. I've been told that I stand when I speak. Okay. What is wrong with that? I've been told that I might be more demure. My daughter and I laugh and say, well, should we wear pink on Wednesday? <laughs> the whole issue of when a woman walks in, uh, how do we project ourselves? How do we look? And in this book, what I argue is not for us to make over ourselves. I mean, I don't want us to be tyrants or anything like that, but I've actually seen some self-help books that basically have told women, you know what, you got to feminize yourself. You have to talk more quietly, maybe comb your hair differently. I don't believe that. So what I actually tell women is 
first of all, and it's kind of funny, but in this era of social media where likes matter, to get over the need to be liked. You know, be strong, be your authentic self, show your performance, and win over your colleagues and others by the work that you do, by the outputs that you have. And that's why it's important to get those contracts negotiated ahead of time to the greatest extent that we can so that we don't get dinged on, well, you know what, she spoke too loud or she's not that likable, she's a little bit bossy. Because you know what, if we're women and we're leading, probably we're going to be labeled that way. Or they tell them how to dress differently. Bingo. And I've seen get so attention. many of these. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody goes, tells a guy to put on a skirt. <laughs> exactly. And it's so funny when you take a look at some of the women uh, in, in the corporate world, whether it's newspapers or whether it's, you know, uh, like Carly Fiorina, she talks about how before she left her uh, place of employment, it didn't matter what her success records were. It basically came down to her hairstyle, how she talked. It became personality characteristics. And just as you've said, we might think that about men, but we don't lead with that because to some extent, the question becomes, is there a mismatch for women being strong and likable? And we typically don't even consider that when we think about men. Yeah. Yeah. I've even heard, you know, it must be that time of the month for her. I have heard that too, believe it or not. And that is illegal. And so that's the other thing that I talk with uh, in, in the book about. And it's always an, an individual issue. And we've seen different women address this in different way. I am very inspired by Ellen Powell, who up in the Silicon Valley took on essentially what she called the old boys club in Silicon Valley. Now, ultimately, she lost her case before a jury. Uh, but I believe she won the hearts of, I think, women across the country who understood that, um, you know, some of the, the, the double standards, and especially, too, as we started talking about minority women, the stereotypes there. Um, but I think that for women, we need to decide what do we want to do. Sometimes it's just speaking up. I actually advocate that in addition to speaking up, it's important to file the paperwork. It might be a claim. It might be litigation. It might be arbitration. Because the problem is, is if we only leave it you know, with ourselves, it becomes anecdotal and we don't have the record. And if I can say that in 2018, um, uh, 25,000 sex-based discrimination uh, uh, claims were filed. That's a lot. And the more that women speak up, other women and corporations and businesses begin to understand, you can't do this. We're not alone. There's a record there. Yeah. And what I find fascinating is many of these gentlemen have daughters who are moving into leadership positions. And how would they expect their daughters to be treated or their wives to be treated as they climb in their careers? Absolutely. I think it's for everybody, for boys and girls. Yeah. Um, but I especially, and in this book, I talk about like the next generation of women. And that's why if I can say the person and 
I'm just surprised that more of us don't know about her. Anne Hopkins. This was a woman who was, I mean, she was a heavy duty woman. She worked at a major firm. She was actually the first woman who went all the way to the United States Supreme Court back in 1989. And that was the first time that the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that employers cannot discriminate against women on the basis of stereotypes, gender stereotypes. I am shocked that we don't know her name. And so this book, I pay tribute to her because really she opened the door for us. And here we are though, I mean, 1989, here we are decades later and we're still finding the same issues. So I wanna resurrect her and really think about the significance, the, the, the her story, as I say, that she made for all of us. Yeah, and um, one of the thing I also wanted to recognize, I'm actually gonna read the quote here, because I'm in Canada. And so we had Kim Campbell, the first and only female prime minister in 1993. And um, you have here, if I didn't speak the way I do, I wouldn't have been seen as a leader, but my way of speaking may be graded on people who were not used to hearing it from a woman. It was the right way for a leader to speak, but it wasn't the right way for a woman to speak. Absolutely. And what you point out is that this occurs not only for women in the corporate world, women trying to seek, you know, access to managerial ranks, the, the privileged C-suite, but in politics. And I've been in politics for many years. And, you know, it doesn't matter how we ultimately view a woman's politics. But when we start taking a look at just how we ding women, you know, here in the United States, we saw a handful of women run for the United States presidency. None of them won. But it's interesting to listen to, you know, irrespective of their political platforms, how were they depicted? How were they presented? And too often women were be told that they were angry because we're supposed to smile, sugar and spice, everything right. nice. They didn't laugh, they cackled. And that is a word that often it's, it's, you don't talk about men cackling. No. I, I used to laugh because, um, you know, Bernie Sanders, the, the presidential candidate, you know, he was, uh, it seemed he was always yelling at everybody, but he was affable. People loved him. Go ahead and yell at me more. But if a woman like Elizabeth Warren, for example, if she were to raise her voice, oh, she's screaming, she must be hormonal. And so you find very different depictions of how women speak and lead, irrespective of their platform. So Canada, India, Margaret Thatcher in England, I kind of go around the world to show how women in strong positions, you know, we need to assert ourselves, we need to speak up, but then we get told, you know, you're that word that rhymes with which. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah, the more, more I'm, you know, delving into this, it's just, I can see the frustration and I can see how there's been times I've witnessed women see a man and they'll back away, let him take the lead. And, and I would sit back and say, well, why can't a woman take lead? Absolutely. And yet they lead their families. They make the majority of decisions in the household, you know, so why wouldn't it be possible for any of you listening or your daughters or, you know, your girlfriends or that they have an opportunity to lead and 
be the, their authentic selves without being said, well, they got upset you because you were the weaker one. And yet, if you were to reframe that weaker point of view, it was because you were more approachable. And they could, they felt safe to dump whatever they needed on you. Instead of saying that they came to you because you were weaker. There is a classic study that was done that really illustrates how arbitrary it really is. Uh, it's called the Heidi Howard study. And this was a study that was done basically where they presented a resume in front of you know, the participants in the study. Everything's identical except the name. So, so this, uh, the participants who got the resume with Heidi uh, versus the participants who got the resume with Howard. And so they looked at how we evaluate. And we found overall that uh, both of them were considered to be very competent. I mean, it's the same resume. But when we looked at, do we like them? Do we want to work with them? Are they trustworthy? We did not like Heidi. We love Howard. We don't like him. And the sad thing is, is that was the classic study that sort of kicked off some of these gender bias in business uh, research uh, paradigms. Mm -hmm. We have found that even more recently that when this study is run, we still, after decades of progress, we still get these same um, results. And so it really is something where we find that we've been successful at really beginning to tackle and outlaw the overt sexism, like, you know, unequal pay for the same work. We've been pretty good at that and putting laws on the books, but where we're still not doing well, you know, and again, since that's U.S. Supreme Court ruling with Ann Hopkins, is on the subjective, the personality, the stereotypes, which ultimately means that women still suffer a likability penalty, that if we don't tackle it, it's going to continue on with our daughters, our nieces, our sisters to the next generation. So that's why in this book, I just say, look, we have to say, stop. We have to start talking about it, document it, write it, ally with others. Men can and should be our allies as well, because it's not always just women. And also urging at a workforce, if we see something, to say something and to, you know, to really begin to highlight and document these issues and raise them. Because as the book points out, many uh, male bosses as well, they don't recognize it when they are doing something that uh, is considered to be um, a, a bit capricious towards women. Right. Because it's a conditioning. Absolutely. Yeah. And it starts from, you know, even before birth, when we start putting together those little nurseries, pink, blue, what kind of toys, etc. cetera. Uh, it's, uh, it's, I used to lecture on this because I was a university professor and I would lecture on this for, you know, a few decades at the university. And then in my career, when I started seeing some of this happening, I thought, oh my gosh. So that's when I went back and did the research and thought, this is so much more uh, out there than what I had even thought. And this book is actually the first treatise on this topic. I give credit to Sheryl Sandberg, Lean In. She talks about this, but it's one chapter out of her book. And so this sort of is the next step, I think, in talking about, let's look at the entire field. And so I'm excited about that. So other authors, especially women authors, bloggers as well, have written about this, talked about it. But this is the first time that I think it's really pulled all together. 
Well, that's definitely what makes your book different. And um, when, when we think about how we cha- challenge gender bias in our daily lives, what are some of the things that both men and women could be doing? Um, again, too, a lot of times we're just unaware, both men and women. Um, so I think it depends on which aspect of life. Um, in the book, I talk about even language, for example, how we speak uh, uh, in, in certain terms. And I give even from the workforce, for example, when we talk about uh, uh, the team huddle, uh, getting to the end zone, we use a lot of mostly male sports terminology to talk about success in the workplace. And we just sort of adopt it without thinking. Now, I'm, I like sports. I'm not saying we do away with it, but it's important to be cognizant of what other language we might use. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important for us to, to do this. I think uh, like podcasts such as what you're doing for us, both men and women to be aware of this, I really do believe in workshops at workplaces to have us understand and to begin to think about what might occur at our workplace that we can begin to say, you know what, that is, I'm, I'm relying on stereotypes and how I judge somebody. Uh, but again, ultimately, I think the most important is really thinking about the criteria by which we are evaluated. I also point out as well, too, it's important if it's a board, a nonprofit or an executive level to look at our boards. I mean, who are our board of directors? Is there training there? What are the numbers of women as well on these boards? Because typically, the more we have there in a leadership position, the more likely it is that we're going to pay attention to these issues. And then I think it's also looking at companies to find out uh, what are the numbers? You know, uh, Are there arbitration settlements? Are there complaints? Are there filings against them? Sometimes it's hard to find the information, but the more that we can publish and make available, the more we know. Definitely an issue that needs to be raised, especially in this time when we're really doing a lot of focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I'm, I'm also curious about the emotional toll it takes on women who are very passionate about the work that they want to do. And, you know, and it would be interesting to know the studies of how much assertion that they put in before they give up or that they get past that certain shatter that glass ceiling. Right. And that is such an important point because there is a psychological toll. In Ann Hopkins case, for example, it took seven years to ultimately uh, for the Supreme Court to basically order her her firm to have her be recognized as a partner in the firm. And during that time, you're questioning your self-worth. You're questioning your own womanhood. You're questioning your own sense of self. A lot of times women will say, I'm just going to walk away. We feel shame. We feel embarrassment. We are ridiculed. We're for, you know, she's trying to wear the pants or she's, you know, the witch. And it's a worse word than that. So it takes a toll on family. Um, I know in my career as well, too, I mean, I'm a strong person, but we have emotions. Um, And so it's difficult to do that. So I think that it's an important factor. And I would just urge women going through this or recognizing it to give support to others, uh, to not give up on yourself. It's important. And I think it's helpful to talk with friends 
Um, I found that for me, it's been wonderful to reach out to my fellow, you know, uh, uh, comrades in arms. And I started feeling much better because I thought I was alone. But then they would say, you know what, Gloria, this happened to me. I was told the same thing. I was called a witch. I was called this. I was called that. Uh, I saw, you know, I had a box of tampons put on my desk, you know, sort of implying what they thought about me. And so it's important to get that affirmation, but it really has to start with yourself, to not give up on yourself, to know your value, but to recognize as well that we are still living in a society that where we've made great progress in smashing the glass ceiling, but as the book points out, it's more like there's not really a ceiling, it's a whole labyrinth that we've got to go through. And when that glass breaks, it hurts, you know, it, it cuts us. And so to not give up on the emotional part, but to not become a phony, to really stand up for yourself and to say, this is how I speak. This is how I stand. This is my style of leadership. And if a man can do it without criticism, why can't I, especially when we can see the results of our value at the workplace? Yeah. And, and I think, especially when you're talking about boards, when there is a mixture of all, um, male and female, that there is this different type of balance that shows up when it comes to the leadership versus one versus the other. And I, I do feel that, you know, whether it be either gender, but each one brings to the table such significant gifts and um, competencies in that leadership and we can't be strong in all of them. And that's why we need that diversity on a board or in our organizations. So that leadership starts from within. Because if, if the leadership group cannot be cohesive, how does the people that they have following them or the people they're leading going to be cohesive as a group either? Absolutely, that point is critical. And it's important because we start developing this critical mass and sort of this moving forward, moving out so that we're not these, you know, strange creatures from another planet when, you know, a woman walks in and speaks in a different voice, perhaps. So it is very important to see that and um, to be able to recognize that women matter and to start then tackling. So I think it's very important, you know, sort of what comes first. Well, it sort of all happens at the same time, but to have women on the boards, women walking into those corporate suites, leading by example, leading with, uh, with strength, and then tackling as well too, all of the stereotypes by which we grow. And that's why I think these cases, like when you read what happened with Ann Hopkins and actually look at the transcripts, it is absolutely incredulous what she went through, but yet here we are, 2021, and we're still finding the same types of cases, although many are being settled with um, uh, non, you know, the, the, the non-disclosure agreements. And I talk about that because a lot of women will sign them and just say, you know what, I just want it to end, they'll go forward. Some states are looking at them and I really applaud and call for state legislatures to look at them. Because if you think about an NDA, it can shorten the time. You don't go through litigation. It can be very costly to hire a lawyer, et cetera. It can be very painful. 
But by the same token, depending on how that NDA might be structured, it's almost as though the woman is being victimized two times because first at the workplace and then secondly, by basically being told, you have to shut up. You can never talk about this again. So there are there are pros and cons of NDAs, but I encourage state legislatures to look at these. And here in California, for example, there is a senator, Connie Leva, who has taken on and begun to look at some of these NDAs. And I, I'm hoping that she will begin to take it to the next level as well. But it's a state by state strategy. Yeah, because at the end of the day, I, I do believe like if I was to even look at myself, I wanna get somewhere by merit. I wanna get somewhere because I earned my spot, not because it was assigned, um, because people felt that it needed to be for that equality. Um, but at the end of the day, like you said with that Heidi and Howard, you know, I, I'd almost say take the names off the plate and just look at the resume and then make your decision. <laughs> because if that's going to be that influencing factor, I'm like, oh, Deborah, that, that'll be a giveaway, you know. Um, but definitely to be able to pull on the strengths and merit and, you know, those references that people provide for you supporting your work that you've done for them, right, to have those measurement and performance components. Yeah. And what you said is very important. Uh, what I point out as well is that many recommend as well, too, for employers to do exactly what you said, to sort of have the blind resume, to basically look at, let me look at the resume, let me take a look at the credentials, let me do this, and then do some evaluations based on that. So right away, you're walking in with more objective metrics rather than the, oh, how does she walk? How does she talk? Does she talk with her hands? Oh, my God. I do. <laughs> so I'd be knocked right out right away. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would often joke around, you know, that I, I should be Italian because I think of, you know, in the movies that the, the Italians will use their hands a lot when they speak or with the Godfather, right? And I think, well, maybe that's what I should have should have been with my hands. And in speaking, it's more so that you're punctuating. And when you talked about standing, I'm like, that's when you stand in your power of your truth. So it's very fascinating to me to have people intimidated by that. And all I say is, Gloria, stand firm, stand tall, and talk with your hands. <laughs> that's yes, very important. <laughs> absolutely. And and again, too, and it's it's so interesting, like, that we even have to talk about this, but it happens. It has happened. I have seen it in my career and I know others have felt it and seen it as well. Uh, and it's so interesting because if we don't pay attention to this and you know, part of it in looking at this is we understand what's happening in part because we look at that real gap in terms of the, the lack of, and I don't, you know, it's not a quota, it's not an exact equity, but just looking at the numbers overall, when we find such an absence of women in these key roles, both in the executive world as well as the political arena, then we start understanding the subjective psychological societal factors as well. But we find that if we don't address them, it's going to take, and some estimates are as many as you know, 400 years before we finally get some type of you know, catching up. I mean, that's four centuries. 
but the catalyst report, other reports that have looked at how long would it take to really close those gaps if we don't uh, start addressing them now. And so I, I think that everything that we can do is important. I mean, we don't want to always be like, okay, gotcha, do this, et cetera. But there are ways to basically, as we say, to start looking at you know, the boards, the documents overall, the performance metrics, perhaps even the blind resumes, depending on how we look at that, training of staff that it's okay if a woman raises her voice. She's not yelling. She's, she's talking loud. And if a man can talk loud and just be assertive, then it doesn't mean that she's screaming because she's hormonal. And so there's a lot of work to be done, but I think more and more. And, you know, if I can say as well, too, this isn't just even in the executive and political world, in Hollywood as well, we begin to see how women are treated. And this exacerbation of the likability factor, it begins to magnify itself, especially too for women of color, where black women get told they're angry, for example, and older women are basically being written off. So we find all of these, this, this likability and gender inequity in all of these arenas that we see. Yeah. And when you mentioned Hollywood, the first thing that came to me when you talked about, you know, in the workplace, we talk about having objectives. Yet in Hollywood, the first word that comes to when I think of objective, I think of objectify. Right. So very different definitions in objectifying something versus being objective. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah fascinating. Yeah, I, I had the uh, the honor of meeting Rose McGowan not too long ago in California. And to me, I think she's somebody who I believe, you know, at great expense to herself and to her career, but she stood up. I mean, to me, she was somebody who, when we go back and we look at the whole Me Too movement and what ultimately pushing back on this, she stood up. And so I think in that sense, we look at it and a lot of women will feel hesitant because they think, well, you know, I'm going to be fired or I can't do this, et cetera. And that's why every woman has to make her own decision. But if we don't speak up, it continues. And what if all of us spoke up? And also the men who are our allies, because this is not woman versus man. This is really looking at how do we all confront the stereotypes and the bias that we see. And so we need to have men in the, in, in the, um, the battle with us. But if we all begin to do it and stand up, there's ways that we can change this, even though it's been you know, a long time since Ann Hopkins first walked in to that US Supreme Court and they said, you cannot discriminate because you think that uh, a woman should be charming or dress a certain way or not ride a motorcycle in the case of Ann Hopkins. Right, right. And, you know, it's about standing true to your core values, being authentic. And, you know, if you have a vision for yourself, obviously, that's something that you can see yourself doing and to step forward and lean in as Sheryl Sandberg talks about. Absolutely. And so it is, it's really, I think at the end of the day, before it even gets to a court or before you deal with lawyers, it really is recognizing that you are strong, you know, your inner self, that you're worth fighting for. I mean, think about all that we do. We fight for the company. We fight for, you know, the shareholders. We make sure the doors are open. We do so, we give, give, give. 
And I think this is a time when we think about it, even when it's when we are accused of something, to stop and fight for ourselves. And I think we're surprised that once we start talking about it, we find support. But the, the issue has been that for too long, we keep it inside. We don't talk about it. So hopefully we'll just speak up. Don't worry if we are likable or not. Put away Facebook. Put away Twitter that basically depends on likes. Like, oh my gosh, how many likes did I get today? Sort of park all that. Say what we uh, believe and then do what we say. And we'll find the support that we need. I, I, I'm the eternal optimist, even dealing with rough things uh, yeah. in the workforce and seeing others. I really believe that there's goodness in people and that when we work together, we will say it's not wrong. And we should recognize the, the value that everybody has, irrespective of our, of our pronouns or how we identify. It's about standing true and finding our voice and letting our voice be heard because that's one of the biggest things that I, when I speak to women is you need to always feel that you've expressed yourself, that you don't stuff it down and think, no, it doesn't matter because that's how we end up playing small. Absolutely. Um, as former state Senator Gloria, I know that you are a role model for many women. I'm curious who your role model is. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I've got to think about my mother. Uh, my mother had a sixth grade level of education. I have a PhD, but my mother was somebody who believed in education. I saw her with limited language abilities. Uh, she would advocate for me. Uh, she would make room at the kitchen table because we didn't have desks or separate rooms to make sure that I would do my work so that I could excel. And uh, she was very proud. When I was first elected to office, uh, she was so happy and she didn't, she passed away before she saw me sworn in as a California legislator, but she had already planned to, she told me, she said she was going to take the bus to Sacramento and be there. So Aww. I know that, I know that it was exciting for her. So I, I have to recognize my mother. And that's why too, like with my daughter, I talk about her in the book because it's actually my daughter who was the inspiration for me to write the book. She said, mom, you've got to write this book because there's so much that you can can say. So I think it's my mother, my daughter inspires me. I've got dear friends as well who have gone through their own challenges and have come out standing. And I admire that in them. So what would you say to women moving forth in leadership right now? Um, one or two tips that your final, some of your final words of wisdom from our interview. Pick up my book, <laughs> read it, uh, believe in yourself and speak up. Uh, we are beautiful, we're lovely, likability, uh, being called unlikable is something that's enmeshed in decades, if not centuries of bias in how we have viewed men and women. So we need to park those labels and really create a new terminology. But I think too, remaining optimistic, remaining positive, and just having the courage to be true to ourselves and to stand up for ourselves. Totally about courage over comfort, <laughs> courage over comfort. What is one book that has had a significant impact on your life? I know writing a book, birthing the book, of uh, you know, just not that likable, which we have here and I'll have it in the show notes as well. But what is one book that has really changed the way you show up in the world? Oh my gosh, there's any number of them, I suppose. Um, 
I must admit I'm a Jane Austen fan and people are surprised because they go, Gloria, you're so strong and leader, but you know, I, I love Jane Austen. Maybe it was her, maybe it's the author, but I think always, they have always said that, you know, Jane Austen, she wanted all her books to end, to end well, people are happy at the end. And so I think that had a big influence on me is making sure that at the end of the day, we're happy and family matters and community matters. And so um, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, <laughs> Persuasion, all of them I could list, all of those. Um, but in terms of the, uh, the um, business world, I mean, sh uh, surely I was very impressed and excited when I read Lean In for the first time with Sheryl Sandberg. That was one where really thinking about the challenges that women in the workforce uh, in particular face. Yeah. And it's about making sure that our personal stories end well. So I, I love that you alluded to Jane Austen. My final question for you is, what does it mean to you to live rich from the inside out? It means peace of mind. It means you, you go to bed at night and you have a clear conscience. Um, I think it's important for us to have a, a sense of, of, of a compass, a moral compass that guides us. Uh, a spirituality, a belief in ourselves, a connection to a higher being, whatever the higher being may be for anybody. Um, but I think it's important that when we, when we speak up and do well for ourselves, it's a, uh, you talked about the, the, um, the comfort. Uh, it's important for us to be courageous in making sure that we have that mental comfort that we deserve. So, a peace of mind, I think, is very important. And, and to me, it was always important when in politics, uh, people would say, well, what do you do and how do you do it? And how can you stand all the sleaze? That, because you see sleaze in politics. Right. But I always believed it was important. And I could always feel that I could go home at night, see myself in the mirror and know that I had done the right thing. And I think, too, as long as we do the right thing for ourselves, you like in the airplane, you're supposed to put the mask on first and then you help your child or somebody else. We have to take care of ourselves and to have that sense of well-being, because if not, there's health effects, there's, you know, monetary effects. We will not be our best selves if we don't have that ease of conscience that I believe we achieve when we know we've done the right thing for ourselves as well. We have to love ourselves. And we got to be happy with the person looking back at, back at us in the mirror. Absolutely. Absolutely. How can people stay in touch with you? I'm on Twitter at Gloria J. Romero. I can also be reached via my publisher, Post Hill Press. I'm very thankful to the publisher for taking the chance on this author and this book. And um, I think those are probably the easiest ways to do it. And now through you, you have my contacts. So just say, yes. you know, hello, we watch the podcast and we'd love to be in contact. Yeah, absolutely. Now, everyone, we're going to have everything, you know, about the former state Senator Gloria Romero in the show notes so that you can access the book. You, you can connect with her on Twitter. Also, you can also message me and I can pass on messages. We need to really step into tackling this topic of gender bias so that we can lead in generations where people feel free to show up authentically, unapologetically as themselves and to be able to lean in. Thank you so much uh, 
for coming on the show, Dr. Romero. It is a pleasure to have you. Um, any final words that you'd like to say before we sign off? I would just like to give kudos to you for all that you do to empower, to invigorate, and to really make us as women, especially, to feel our best selves. So, and to your listeners that have made this podcast a great success that it is. I feel like a millionaire right now. <laughs> awesome. It's all about living rich from the inside out. Thank you, everyone, for joining us here on the Millionaire Woman Show. That is our special guest tonight, former state Senator Gloria Romero and forceful advocate for women's rights. We're talking about gender bias. And don't forget to pick up her book, Just Not That Likeable, that will be in the show notes. And you can pick it up at your local bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all of those fun places. And we'll make sure that that's accessible to you in our show notes. You can also go over to my website at www.debrakazowski.com and that's Kazowski with an S, K-A-S-O-W-S-K-I. And right now you can get your three-part video course of Making Habits Stick. As Mahatma Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world. And on behalf of Dr. Romero and myself, go out and have a great day. <laughs>